Hi, everyone. It's Nika, the founder of Urban Remedy, welcoming you to the You Are Love podcast, inspiring health through food, lifestyle, and making conscious choices. Welcome to the Urban Remedy podcast. I'm so excited today to be speaking to Miyoko Shinner. She's the founder of Miyoko's Creamery, the pioneer of the plant cheese revolution. Shinner is a passionate culinarian, former restaurateur, TV personality, and best-selling cookbook author. She has dedicated her life to inspiring compassion through the joy of food and the positivity of plants, and she is the co-founder of Rancho Compassion, a farmed animal sanctuary in Northern California that provides a home to over 120 rescued farm animals. Welcome, Miyoko, and thank you so much for joining. Hi, Nika. It's a delight to be on the show with you. First of all, I'm sure most people that are listening know your cheese, but I love your cheese so much. I, it is the only vegan cheese that I use at, in our Urban Remedy salads and a couple of our other wraps. And it's just, it's so incredible. And the first time I tried it because I don't eat dairy either, I was literally amazed at how good it is. I mean, you literally cannot tell the difference of regular dairy cheese and your cheese. It's incredible. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like, you know, our philosophies are really, really aligned because we we both both companies believe in uh, clean ingredients, whole foods, organic foods, and, and we're kind of going backwards to a lot of what's happening in the plant-based arena, which is really all about food tech and just, you know, stuff that's that's made in a lab. And I feel like our two companies are really aligned in our approach to food. So it's really wonderful to partner with you. There's plant, like you were saying, plant foods that are based in technology. And then there's just simple foods um, that we've been, and ingredients that we've been using, you know, since the beginning of time. And those foods are already so nourishing and beautiful and flavorful. And you could do so much with them um, without technology. And not that I'm saying technology is bad, but I love that we both enjoy like simple foods and simple ingredients. And those, I think, I do think those are the most nourishing. Right. And I think it resonates with a lot of consumers too. You know, the question is, it's interesting how we feel like we have to do something that is just so sciencey. Yes. And and we we seem to have forgotten that people just like a good, honest meal. Totally. Exactly. I know. And that's what always really interests me about veganism is that there's like a really healthy way to eat. And, and it's that way with any diet, even if you're talking about people that eat meat or people that eat dairy or whatever version of a diet that they're doing, there's like a healthy version and then there's a super high processed version. So there's sometimes I see things on like some of the vegan um, based posts and it's like they're eating like vegan donuts and like all these high processed foods and and while it's really nice to be vegan, it's also like, where's the information about the super healthy foods? Right, right, right. No, absolutely. I mean, we do have to, you know, I, I still feel like there's other issues beyond health, such as saving the planet and animals. So so overall, if it's a choice between animal-based donuts or vegan donuts, I'm going to choose vegan donuts. But at the end of the day, if we don't stay healthy, we can't fight for the animals or the planet. Exactly. So we do have to take care of ourselves. Exactly. I totally agree. So let's start out. I, I know a little bit about your story, but I would love to know, you know, how you started. And I, I read that you started or you became a vegetarian or yeah, a vegetarian when you were 12. But I'd love to know a little bit more about that and how you got so passionate um, on animal, animal husbandry and just a little bit about your journey. Yeah, sure. Um, when I was 12 years old, I became a vegetarian when I made that connection between animals and food. And it was the easiest thing that I ever did. I, I remember kids used to try to taunt me with hamburgers and go, you want to eat this, don't you? And I'm like, <laughs> get that out of my face. That's just, you know, that's disgusting. And so I just made that transition one day overnight. It was very, very simple. I never looked back. And then in my 20s, um, living in Japan, um, where I had moved back. I was originally born in Japan, moved to the United States, and then I moved back to Japan. Um, I went vegan uh, after I learned about the treatment of, of uh, dairy cows. Um, and that was a, a longer journey for me because I was so addicted to cheese. I was a total mm -hmm. cheese head. I had to have cheese, you know, 10 times a day. I, I, lived, I lived for fine European style cheeses. Mm. And a life without that was unimaginable to me. So I went vegan and I had to figure out, okay, how do I satisfy my taste buds? And I came up with all sorts of things, but I just never nailed cheese. And so over the years, I had a bakery and a restaurant, a catering company, a natural food company in the 90s that made 
need alternatives before, you know, they were cool and all of that. But I just never nailed cheese. And in the 2000s, I was like, I'm getting older. I still need that cheese to have with my glass of wine. And so I just started working on it. I read books on making cheese, uh, dairy cheese, that is. I took some classes, um, watched videos. And then I just started thinking, how do I apply this to plant milk? Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the vegan cheeses that were in the marketplace at the time, there were just a couple of brands and they were the slices and shreds, predominantly made out of oil and starch, sort of a processed cheese technology. And they didn't start from milk. Um, and so for me, it was like, okay, if you, cheese is a coagulation of dairy uh, milk proteins that, are, that have been pre that have been, you know, um, cultured and pressed. Um, and tofu is the same thing. Tofu is a coagulation of soy milk protein, but it's not cultured. And um, what if we did the same thing with other milks? What if we could take other milks and culture them and coagulate them and turn them into cheese? So I just started doing all this experimenting in the 2000s. Um, that's kind of how it, it all started. Um, but, you know, I really didn't think that anybody would eat the stuff. Um, and then I just started serving it. Um, and it all kind of started with this uh, uh, cooking class I did one day. And I, I thought, you know, I'm just going to try making these vegan cheeses for the, it was for the San Francisco vegetarian society for mm -hmm. a veg fest. And I did this, I made a bunch of cheeses and people were like, Oh my God, this is like uh, 2007 or eight or something. They're like, Oh my God, are you going to write a book? Are you going to start a company? And I wasn't planning to do any of that, but I eventually did write a book. Uh, and then I started the company. And what was, so what were the first cheeses that you made? Were they similar to the ones that you have now? Um, well, it depends on at what point in history. I think the first cheese that I made was back in the 1980s uh, out of tofu, where I, uh, I I buried tofu that in a mixture of miso, midin, which is sweet sake, and white wine, and the texture changed over a week Ooh. based on a, a technique that um, I saw on television in Japan where these nuns buried tofu and various things like ash and miso. And totally change the texture and the flavor profile. So I started playing around with that. And I served that at a restaurant I had in the 1990s. And then probably the next cheese was, um, actually, it's funny, it's kind of like a liquid, it's like a precursor to the liquid mozzarella we just launched with, except for it was made out of oat milk mm. back in the um, early nine, the 1990s. And I served it at my restaurant. Um, so there were ver many, many iterations, but in terms of fermenting cheese, probably the first one was made out of soy. And that was in the early 2000s. Yeah. And what was your restaurant? I, I what was your rest? Like, what was the menu like at your restaurant? Yeah, uh, it was called Now and Zen. And it was kind of a, it was called Now and Zen Bakery and Bistro. And we had things like tofu bourguignon and, um, you know, cabbage rolls stuffed with, with uh, chestnuts and wild rice Ooh. and red wine glaze or uh, gateau de crepe. Uh, which was like a 12-layer crepe cake that sandwiched mushrooms and bechamel sauce and pureed mm. kabocha squash and things like that. So it was really the one of the first upscale vegan restaurants in the country. And Millennium opened up around the same time. Oh, uh, okay. And where yeah. was it in San Francisco? It was in San Francisco, yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so sad yeah. I never ate there. And what about your, I, so I, it's so interesting that you started, that you also did the unturkey and I read about your vegetarian meat substitutes. That's so, isn't that interesting that that's kind of how you started and now this whole like meat, you know, fake meat yes. is like one of the most popular things. So yeah. what, what was the base of that? Was that a soy based? No, that was actually, well, it was seitan and soy. Oh, cool. Okay. So wheat and, and, you know, back then there really weren't very many options. So uh, what I was making, I mean, there were some really bad veggie burgers, we'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, but I was making a whole breast of unchicken, uh, a whole steak called the unsteakhead that was in a red wine marinade. And so it was a little bit, you know, it was like real, there were really flavorful cuts of vegan meat that you could cook with. Um, so, it, yes, yeah, the world has totally changed. Uh, the world wasn't ready for what I was doing back in the 90s. 
No, you're such a visionary, though. I love that. When I read that, I was like, oh, my God, it's like this all has just kind of come through you. I love I love your whole process. So from the beginning, when you said that you were 12, is that where you really got interested in your connection with animals and your interest in animal husbandry and and saving animals? Or was it more that you just didn't want to eat meat then? Well, I wasn't in. No, I mean, I had these visions. My, My favorite Disney cartoon was was Snow White. And my favorite scene was Snow White standing in the forest with her arms outstretched, surrounded by wild animals and birds perched on her arms. And, and for some reason, I would have these, you know, daydreams about saving animals, but I never actually did. Um, I never had that opportunity. I never really did anything uh, until, you know, I, I was an adult, actually. But I knew that animals, uh, when I was 12 years old, had their own lives. And who was I to take them away? Mm-hmm. That didn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. I used to tell my friends, well, in order to live life, why do I have to take life? Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of my retort to people when they say, oh, why don't you eat meat? Yeah, I, I felt like that. I remember when I became a vegetarian at a, a young age, too, that I kind of I had that the same feeling. And Let's move a little bit to, and and I think actually on that, it's really interesting because I think especially today, we're so disconnected from our food sources. And so, you know, when kids are eating hamburgers or hot dogs or chicken or whatever meat that they're eating, you know, they really don't understand or have the access to any sort of farms or anything to really understand that that's an animal. You like to them, it's food. And they're so dis. I mean- we're so disconnected from our farming. And I try to explain it to my son. You know, this this is where this comes from. And you have to understand, you know, meat is, you know, from an animal and this is the process and this is how it works. And um, I think that if kids were more connected or had more, you know, exposure to farms, especially if anybody saw, you know, you know, commercial dairy farms or not any, you know, uh, big factory farms, you know, I think so many more people would not eat meat. So well, you really just nailed it because it's really true. I mean, this is something that really bothers me. There's a, um, a slaughterhouse near here and there's barbed wire and all this stuff around it. And it doesn't look like any kind of friendly place that you'd want to go. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not just the farm is wonderful because you go to a farm and you see, um, you know, cows grazing in the grass and everything seems so idyllic, but uh, that's not the end, you know, the, the, in order for it to become uh, a packaged steak, uh, it has to go to that slaughterhouse, has to get on that transport truck and go to the slaughterhouse and you can see the terror in their eyes. Mm. And that's the part that really just would break any kid's heart because terror in an animal is easily understood by, by even humans. I mean, you can yeah. see it in their eyes. And so, you know, we take, it's interesting, we take kids to farms to pick berries but we don't take kids to the slaughterhouse to see where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. And we won't, we'll never do that because that's the part we want to pretend doesn't exist. We, yeah. we want to pretend that it doesn't exist, not just for our kids, but as adults too. Um, but that's the reality of the food system. One of our investors um, did the movie, the documentary, not saving animals. Oh God, now I can't remember what it's called. Um, it's about regenerative agriculture as well, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but anyway, I, but I, you know, I took a friend to watch that, you know, and she stopped eating meat after she watched it because it really delved deeply into factory farmed dairy and factory farmed meats of all sorts. And um, I, I wanted a bunch of my other friends to see it. And so I was like, really, I was saying, you know, you should, you know, watch this documentary. And people just did not want to see it because they didn't want to know. And they were like, it's so hard to watch because it hurts my heart or I just can't watch it because, you know, and it's, it's like, like it's their lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. People don't, they don't want to connect with the horror that is this factory yep. farming. And especially, I think a lot of people, even vegetarians don't realize that cheese um, the way the dairy cows are treated is absolutely horrific in, um, you know, big dairy farms. And I, I you know, and well, so it's worse. It's worse than meat because yeah. they never have a chance. I mean, I was listening to a story on NPR about this, uh, um, this farm in Pennsylvania that uh, is now carbon neutral because they're taking all the manure and then uh, they're, they're uh, turning it into uh, fuel and electricity. Oh, wow. And that sounds really, really great. 
um, that they've solved the methane problem. Uh, but then he went on to, uh, the, the question in my mind was, well, how are you collecting all that manure for, from um, 1,200 cows or 2,000 cows or whatever it was? He had a couple thousand cows. And it turns out they're all indoors, never see the light of day. Oh. And they're all, there's like 2,000 cows in a three acre warehouse. Oh my God. And, and that's how they live their life. So yes, they're carbon neutral, but at what cost? Yeah. You know, and that's the question that people don't think about. Exactly. Um, so we don't think of them as living beings. We just think them as as machines that serve our needs or as commodities for our, our, our pleasure. So, you know, we, we really have to think about, I don't know, I think, you know, we need to wake up and become humane beings, not just human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That stuff, it makes me absolutely insane. And so tell us a little bit about your animal sanctuary since we're talking about animals and farming. Yeah. Um, well, it's a farmed, uh, it's a farmed animal sanctuary. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. I started about six years ago and we have about a hundred farmed animals, uh, including birds, meaning turkeys and ducks and geese and chickens, but we also have cows and goats and sheep and donkeys and pigs, uh, and sheep. And, uh, we have different programs, um, right now because of Omicron, we've canceled all the public visitations, but we typically have, uh, lots of visitations, uh, work days, uh, various events. Um, this year, we're planning to have a mindful eating film festival at the Marin Civic Center on August 7th. Uh, knock on wood that we're able to actually do it. And we're going to be showing movies like the one you mentioned uh, and having um, a veg fest there right there on uh, right off of 101. Wow. So we're not just saving animals, um, but we're connecting people to the individual lives that, that we have. Um, one of the greatest things that I've been able to do, or I've realized in having these animals and living with them is that I've, I've gotten to know them as individuals. And I can tell you that not all goats are the same. They all mm -hmm. have very distinct personalities, just like people. And I'll tell a, a really quick story. I had a goat that had been very, very ill for a long time. And we thought we were going to have to put her down, but she made this remarkable comeback. And when she did, I guess she wanted to show off her strength. So she was just starting to headbutt everybody. <laughs> and I took her on a, I took all the goats on a hike one day and we were up on this steep hillside and I was standing by a ridge and all of a sudden she started attacking, you know, headbutting me like you wouldn't believe and she wouldn't back off. And I just started screaming. <laughs> all of a sudden, these two guys appeared out of nowhere and stood by my side and chased her off. And those two guys were named Rufus and Reggie and they were other goats. Oh. They saw me, oh. they were way up on the hillside grazing and they saw me being attacked by Madeline and they came running down the hillside oh. to chase her away and save me. So this is the level of consciousness that animals have. Just because they don't speak English doesn't mean they don't understand what's going on. Yeah. They really, really do. And you think about that, the goats, it's not like goats are smarter than cows. Cows are exactly the same thing. Yes. The same personality differences and some are sweet and some are bratty and some are aloof. And I mean, they're all, there's also different and some are courageous and uh, will save your life too. Yeah. So, you know, we just have to be humane enough to understand that they also have lives mm -hmm. and they want yeah. to live. And if we spend the time getting to know them, they will repay us back with so much love. You'd be surprised. It's so true. I love that story. I, I grew up, my parents were serious hippies. And so we lived off the land when I was a little girl. And, and when I was listening to your story, I really loved animals. And my dad got three goats and they, we, as little baby goats, and they were my best friends because I didn't, there was another kids around up there really. And so they would follow me wherever I would go. And they were so sweet and we'd sit down and eat breakfast together. And I, I just have the best memories of those goats. And then we got a sheep. And she was so mean. And I, you know, we got her as a little baby and she never wanted to be touched. She like had this really brash personality and they really do have their own personalities. And yeah, I remembered the name of the film. It's called Eating Animals. Yes. Eating Animals. Yes. Yeah. It's based on Jonathan Saffron. Uh, I can't remember his last names. Anyway. Yeah. It's based on a book called Eating Animals. Yeah. Natalie, was it Natalie Portman who narrated that? Uh, you know what? I think so. And yeah. and one of the things I really liked about that film, 
And I love talking about food and I'm obviously very passionate about organic and non-GMO and, you know, making conscious choices when it comes to everything that you're buying. Because when you vote, you I mean, when you buy stuff, you vote with your dollars. Absolutely. Um, and so one thing I really love about that film that was a, a an important message is you know, if you're buying dairy or meat from big ag or factory farms, especially non-organic, um, and, you know, and it, I would say like everything goes in tears. It's like, you know, you're not going to talk every single person into not eating meat. But, you know, if you can at least talk those people into not buying from factory farms and, you know, at least you're doing something. So I think it goes from like personal decision making. Um, right. but, but there's a complicity when you know yeah. that you're buying dairy and milk and eggs and meat from these big factory farming um, farms, you know, you have complicity in the system, you know, and right. unless you right. stop making that decision, they're going to keep running. Um, and we're not going to be able to stop that from happening. So I think that's a really important point. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the, the, the question that's difficult really is, um, even with factory farms, um, animal agriculture takes up 41% of all U S land mass. And if we were to, let's say, open the doors of the factory farms and, and let the cows roam so that we have enough meat for everyone who wants to eat meat, there's not enough land to support them. Right. So, you know, what we really, really have to think about is all of us, not just those that can afford to eat uh, free range meat, but all everyone who wants to eat meat has to reduce their meat consumption. Yes, absolutely. Or eliminate it entirely. And, and you know, the, the exciting thing is, you know, I... Yes, I had a meat alternative company once a long time ago. I don't eat a lot. I don't eat, you know, I don't eat meat alternatives as a, I mean, I will once in a while if I'm going out or something, but it's not something that, you know, I just go home and cook for myself. I'd much rather eat fresh fruits and vegetables and legumes and yeah. whole grains. I mean, I'm more of a whole foods plant-based person. There's so many alternatives. If health isn't your number one, uh, you know, if you if you just can't get to eating quinoa and fresh veggies, you know, because there are, I know people like that. They're just like, I can't stand anything green. Right. I just like to eat my meat. Then, then, you know, I would say at least, you know, eat for the planet or eat for the animals. Right. If you can't eat for your health, eat for some of these other causes that are just as important. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And if you do eat meat, you don't need to eat it every single day, every single meal, like at least lower your meat consumption. And then you're at least doing something. That's exactly right. Even, you know, once, once a week, you're making a difference. And that's, that's the thing is I think people don't realize that they have power in their hands, that they're, they're actually impacting and not to give them a guilt trip, but to let them know that they're powerful, that they oh, yeah. have the opportunity to make change. Uh, for the planet, for their health, for for animals. And, you know, even one meal a week, you're making a difference. Absolutely. It's so true. Everything we purchase, everything we buy makes a huge difference in the world. And if you look at organics now and how organic food has become um, so much more mainstream and so much popular, you see the bigger food companies switching to organic and, and you know, switching over regular commercial land into organic or regenerative farms. And that is the power of the dollar. Yes, it really is. I mean, it's a grassroots revolution. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just investors or uh, big tech, you know, big food tech uh, pushing the movement along. It's, it's consumers. It's, it's every eater on the planet. Exactly. And I always say it's great, like when you're going out to dinner, or you're going to a restaurant to, you know, really ask them where they source from, um, you know, are their fruits and vegetables and salads organic? What kind of oils are they using? You know, because when you ask these questions, then it gets the chefs starting to think like, oh, I didn't know non-organic canola oil was so bad for me or, or whatever. I, so love, I love that. No, I, I think you're right. You know, a lot of people don't, they just assume when they look at a menu and there's nothing, you know, plant-based or vegan on the menu, they don't even bother to go in and ask. But it's I encourage people to ask. I encourage people to go into non-plant-based uh, restaurants or establishments and ask them if they can make something vegan or healthy. Yeah, because that lets people lets 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 the restaurateur know that demand exists. Exactly. 
Exactly. I love that. Okay. So I would love to, so I've interviewed a bunch of other female founders. And so I would love, you know, you to be able to share any wisdom that you have around, you know, being a female founder and any sort of uh, trials and tribulations that you've gone through to help other women that are, you know, looking to start something of their own. Yeah. I mean, that is a loaded question. I know. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think you and I have probably have had similar challenges. Um, yeah. There was a study that just came out from the Vegan Women's Summit that um, I think it's for only 4% of the, the companies in the plant-based space are funded by, are, are actually go, only, I'm sorry, only 4% of the money in the plant-based space goes to women founders. Mm. So you and I are actually um, the anomaly yeah. uh, that, that we've been funded and we've been funded well, but many women uh, just don't succeed in getting, in getting capital. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, what's, what's really interesting is I, I asked this question at a recent event in New York um, and I was on, I was at this event with this uh, woman who is a VC um, and she only funds women's businesses. And I said to her, you know, why is it that so few women, uh, women entrepreneurs get funded? And she goes, well, the women have to take some responsibility for that. And I was really, really shocked, you know, mm -hmm. that it, and I said, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, when a woman pitches, she pitches with hesitation, with inflections in her voice, without the, the, uh, the courage or the boldness to convince investors that they can count on her. Mm, and, and so, you know, she wasn't saying she's not going to invest in women. That's all she does. And, and she's doing that, but she pointed this out. I just read a book called um, Women, Language, and Power, I believe. And it, it really is that from the time we were young, we were taught to speak a certain way. So yeah. when we start a sentence, we always say, well, I feel like, I think, and a guy will just say, this is how it is. Ah. And I can do this. And, and a, if an investor says to you, well, you know, how do you think you're going to scale this business? A woman will say, well, you know, I'm hoping that I'll be able to do this, that, and the mm. other thing. And a guy will say, this is what I'm going to do. Here's my five-year plan. Right. And just out the gate. He's got a plan. He's he, whether he not, he does or not. He, he could just be BSing. It doesn't matter. The point is he can talk about it with authority in a way that a woman cannot. And so we do have to evolve how we speak. We do have to evolve our language. So we, we come across with authority and we can engender confidence in the people that we're speaking to, whether it's an investor or a supplier or a customer. That um, is so true. And I think there's different parts because I know like when I started Urban Remedy, um, I, you know, I was, you know, I'm an acupuncturist and so I had a private practice for many years. And so I was very well versed in healing and food and, and all of that. So I totally get what you're saying. So I had all the confidence when I first started that people were able to, be, or people believed in me because I really knew what I was talking about because I had been doing it in my practice. But once I got funding and I found myself you know, at board meetings with a, just a bunch of men. And that's all that they did was, you know, investing and financials. When I was in that room, I was just sitting there like, oh my God, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know what they're talking about. And that's where, for me, a lot of intimidation came in and where I felt, you know, really insecure about what I was doing and how I was moving forward. So it's like, there's that balance of like having a really good idea and being confident and then educating yourself on, you know, that other part, which is so important. Well, I, you're absolutely right. And, but I do know that uh, women are just as capable of learning that as men. If you think about it, yes. think about all the uh, plant-based companies that have been started by men who had no food, no prior food or CPG experience mm -hmm. that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're just like you. Uh, maybe they were in finance before, or maybe they were in, I don't know, um, uh, uh, maybe they were a medical doctor. In fact, there are those. And then they went into business or professors and they went into business without any no knowledge whatsoever. And, and now, you know, uh, the world reveres them. Right. Um, so, I, women have been shown to suffer much more from imposter syndrome yeah. because we, we are very honest with ourselves. So when we realize that we don't know something, all of a sudden we admit it to the world and we, and we start feeling like, oh my God, I should know this. And I don't, mm -hmm. a guy doesn't, a guy will 
when they don't know something, it's like, well, I'm going to bluff as, as long as I can. <laughs> and in the meantime, I'm going to figure it out. Um, but we get caught up in the emotions of not understanding something that it's almost self-defeating. Yes. And, and so this is a lesson for, for women um, that we have to have more confidence in our ability. The other thing is that, and this has been shown in this survey that the Vegan Women's Summit did, is that there's much more scrutiny of a woman entrepreneur, a female entrepreneur than a male entrepreneur. So in a board setting or anywhere, anywhere else, um, uh, a woman will be scrutinized for all the things she hasn't achieved, all the mistakes she's made. A, a male entrepreneur will be judged by his achievements. And oftentimes the little, uh, the failures will just be seen as hiccups. Right. Uh, and it's been shown time and time again um, in many, many studies. So, uh, you know, we're judged on, um, we're judged much more harshly than men are. Yes. Because board members are coming, investors are coming into the meeting with the assumption that, okay, she's she's not going to be as strong as the guy. Yes. Or maybe she's really creative and has a good idea, yeah. but she doesn't know how to scale a business. And I think you, you and I, the last time we talked, you know, talked about different women that we know who were women founders who got squeezed out once that like a male CEO came into yes. the company, which happens really, really frequently. And is really sad because, you know, there's all these amazing women with great ideas that are super creative that are badasses. It's not like they're coming in all meek, but when they get their funding, the investor wants to bring in a CEO who might not have the heart and soul and the spirit as a founder. And then a lot of those companies ending up, end up squeezing out the female founder and then they end up not doing well in the long run. That's right. That's exactly right. And the thing is they don't give the female founder a chance to learn and grow, but they give the male founders who may not have any CPG experience that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, but they don't even realize they're doing that. I mean, I can tell you when I first started my company, I don't know, we were probably, this is in the very, very early stages, you know, maybe sub, maybe we we're doing, I don't know, 5 million a year or something, or, right, you know, maybe it was our second year or something. And um, an investor said to me, you know, you're going to have to hire a CEO. That's the reality. You're not going to be able to scale this company beyond $10 million. He said, maybe you can take to 10. You're not going to make it past that. What, so what'd you say? I, I said nothing. I mean, he scared the hell out, you know, the, the diseases out of me because I, you know, I was beginning to feel imposter syndrome and really wondering, oh my God, maybe he's right. Maybe I can't do that. Mm, um, but I just, I persisted and obviously we got through that very quickly. Um, and I haven't heard any comment from him since, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, you know, it, but it really is true. I mean, every time uh, an investor or a board member doubts you, it creates more self-doubt in the woman. Yes. And it sets us up down this, this downward trajectory of being in defense mode mm -hmm. where we're constantly defending ourselves and making X and explaining uh, rather than, you know, being able to take offense. And I don't mean being offensive, but like, on the offense, like, you know, in football or something. Right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so, it, you know, we do not have any level playing field and, you know, I'm, if there's any men listening to this, if you're in the industry at all, I mean, this isn't just the plant-based industry. This is every tech and everything else. The fact is women are not afforded the same opportunities as men, even if they get funding. I mean, yes, of course with funding as well, because they're scrutinized, uh, very differently. And it's all unconscious bias. And there's got to be, you know, people have to start becoming more, more self-aware about that unconscious bias. That unconscious bias comes from women as well as men. Yes. Uh, even within the company. I was yeah. really lucky in the beginning. Um, you know, I raised a million dollars when I first started and I thought that was like the end. Me all. Too. You know, me I was too. like, oh my God, I thought it was yeah. the end all be all. I was so excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that lasted like six months, unfortunately. And then, you know, we had to keep going. But um, I've learned so much over the years by making so many mistakes um, and by, you know, I, I totally get what you're saying with the imposter syndrome. Um, and, and so I would, it sounds like, and it's, I love hearing this from you because I, I think of you as such a badass and I feel like you're so outspoken and you're like, 
I feel like you're really strong in your values, which is a really amazing quality for other women to witness um, as, you know, a role model. And um, so it's great to hear that you've had your own challenges as well. Because I, I was like, I wonder if she's experienced some of that stuff too. Yeah, absolutely. I have definitely experienced it. And I am I want to be a voice for women entrepreneurs. I think it's so important that those of us that have come this far have to help other women and give them a voice and give them encouragement and give them confidence. Because that's really, you know, this meeting this VC in New York who said to me, well, women don't show up in the in, you know, an investor pitch with the same degree of confidence. I mean, that said a lot to me. Yeah. It's not it before that I was like, it's outside of our control. They're just judging us harshly. And and the fact is. We're also, we also have to learn. We can do better ourselves. We yeah. can not end every sentence. I mean, I think, you know, I think it, I might be able to succeed. Mm-hmm. That doesn't give confidence. And so we have to stop talking like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the power of words. It's really yeah. believing in what you say and, and knowing what you say. So for women out there that are interested, you know, in starting their own company or have a vision, you know, it's really educating yourself on and really making sure you're doing something you're passionate about because you don't want to do something, you know, because you think it's cool or something like that. It's something that, you know, you really have to love doing and believing in yourself, understanding the power of words and educating yourself on, you know, the different aspects of starting a company and raising funds and working with a VC or working with, you know, any investor that you want to invest in your business. Um, I was really lucky in the beginning. Um, Cindy Crawford was on our board and she helped me so much because I just saw her because she is such a successful businesswoman and she would sit there and she was so concise and so not intimidated. And I was sitting there so intimidated and, you know, exactly all the things that you said. And by watching her and her confidence, it really helped me see what a woman could be in a board meeting or in the, in the field as a leader. That's wonderful. And, you know, I also very rarely get to talk to other female founders that have been funded and experienced uh, this imposter syndrome. So I, I love, you know, hearing your stories as well. Yeah. Um, because it's so true. Most of the time I'm talking to women that are struggling to get funded. And Yeah. No, yeah. I, yeah. It's really interesting. Well, maybe one day we could do a group with women that are trying to start out or something and mentor or something like that. That would yeah, be really yeah, fun. Yeah. Um, okay. So one of the other things I really want to talk to you about, which I think is so great, is um, your lawsuit, the dairy and the butter and cheese lawsuit. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Sure. In 2019, in December of 2019, we got a letter from the state of California, the California Department of Food and Agriculture, telling us uh, it was a seasoned disease letter about uh, our terminology, vegan butter. They told us that that word uh, was owned by the uh, uh, by the dairy industry. And they told us not only did we have to stop using that word, we had to remove all images of livestock from our website. Um, and so we had a choice. We could either comply as a small company because uh, we were about half the size then as we are now, or we could fight back. And luckily, I had the support of the board uh, in fighting back, and we filed the First Amendment uh, violation lawsuit against the state of California. And in August of 2020, uh, 2021, last August, uh, a judge ruled, uh, and a U.S. district court ruled in our favor. Oh, my God, I love that. So it's really exciting. It's It sets a precedent um, for, for terminology going forward for the entire industry, not just for us. Um, so, you know, we did it, we didn't just do it for us. We felt like California has been bullying, uh, plant-based producers for long enough at the behest of the dairy industry. And it was time to stop. Yeah. Um, and that's why we did it. So I, you know, I think, uh, I personally knew of another woman-owned uh, small vegan cheese company that had basically gotten one of those letters and just basically went out of business. And I, oh I just don't really? think- Oh, that's right. terrible. This is like a few years ago, but um, just didn't want to deal with it. Um, so I just think it's really, really important to um, to stand up and and speak your truth. Yeah. Congratulations, honestly, for doing that. I love it. We, a few years ago, I actually thought it was funny and nothing really happened, but we got, um, we, the National Milk Processors Federation 
um, put out this whole thing about dairy imitators exposed. And oh they, my God. Yes. And they had a whole thing on our blue magic nut milk and how we were pretending to be milk and we were pretending to be dairy and like how much better and they had like this comparison of like calcium and whatever salt and whatever, you know, the thing was. And it was so funny because they put out this really negative, you know, information and it made them look so silly because we're not trying to be a dairy imitator. Like we're very, we have like vegan on there, plant-based you know, and they're trying to call us out. And I think they made themselves look just really silly by doing that. No, they're absolutely threatened. That's what it is. Um, but, and it's funny that they went after you and they didn't go after, let's say, Danone. Exactly. You know, so there are the large dairy consolidators are all making plant-based milks yeah. and plant-based butter. You know, now Chobani's making plant-based, you know, vegan yogurt and stuff. So- it's it's absurd because you know the the whatever this was the the was it what was the organization? Uh, the mail the national national milk producers milk producers federation. Yeah. Okay. Well, they didn't go after Chobani for making you know um, plant based yogurt. They're they're not going after all these bigger companies because they can't. They're all the, all the big dairies are doing it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's so crazy. Yeah, they were saying blue magic milk for continuing to ignore federal standards of identif- identity for dairy products. No, that's absurd. Yeah, so the, uh, you know, the FDA does have something called standards of identity that defines what you can call uh, products and, and also regulations around, for example, butter has to have a certain butter fat, and this, mm-hmm. this, that, and the other thing. Um, and the, the, um, the joke is that the uh, standard of identity for milk products is um, the lacteal secretion of one or more healthy cows free of colostrum. So goat milk or goat cheese does oh, not right. qualify under that definition, but they have not targeted that. Oh, now, that's they're, so they're interesting. Changing. I think they, they were, there was a, um, there was legislation to change that standard of identity to include mammalian milk. I, or something like that. I don't know if that's actually taken, that's actually happened or not. But um, you know, they were actually contradicting themselves because by that definition, you know, sheep's milk, cheese, cow's milk, pecorino wouldn't have qualified as as cheese. Right. So um, anyway, I mean, the these standards are arcane. They were written decades ago, and they need to be revisited. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so ridiculous, the whole thing, in my opinion, but good for you. And congratulations for doing that. I love when I read about that, I was cheering you on. I was so excited for you. Thank um, you. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And your butter and you're, so you're allowed to call your butter, butter. Yeah. We, we, we call, you have to use a qualifier like vegan butter or right. or something like that. So yeah, we can call it vegan butter. Oh my God. Well, your butter is seriously so good. I always have it in my house. My son has no idea. I'm like, do you want butter on this? He's like, yeah, mom, I love the butter. And he has no idea that it's not whatever regular butter. It's so delicious. Oh my God. Thank so, you. Thank I, you. Yeah. I mean, that is, so has anybody co- tried to copy your butter? Are there other like, or is that, are you kind of the only person doing that right now? Well, we were the first to call our butter, butter. Uh, to begin with, that was part of the problem was that uh, everybody else called it, you know, buttery spread. Oh, right. Like and so we called it vegan butter or plant butter. And then other co- then other companies jumped in and started calling their butters or their spreads butter. And people have tried to copy us. But here's the, the, the thing. We're the only one that's actually culturing the milk. Ah. And that's the point of differentiation. We make cashew milk. And then we ferment it. And that's what drives the flavor. Everyone else is basically using oil and then adding natural flavors. So, you know, that's where we, we don't want to go down the road of adding natural flavors. Yeah. Oh God, no, no. And you're, you don't have to add natural flavors. I do all my baking with your butter. Like I make this amazing crisp all the time. It, everybody always wants me to bring it to the office and it's so fun to bake with your butter. It's so good. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. I love it so much. So talking about products and stuff, um, what, I mean, do you have any insights into like any mistakes you've made in the R and D process or like any yes. of your products that you want to yes. share with us? Okay. Yes. Uh, you actually know about it. Um, so we, we were trying to develop a hard cheese. We felt like we had to get into the marketplace with 
the fastest growing sector of the plant-based cheese category, which is slices and shreds. And we felt like we needed to have a cheddar and pepper jack and people were always asking us. And I think we sort of rushed to produce those. And um, by doing that, we sort of compromised our values. We created these products that weren't made from plant milk. All of our products start with a plant milk, uh, such as cashew milk. And now we're using uh, a different seed milk, uh, which are, you know, and these milks are nutrient dense because they're whole foods. Uh, And then we use uh, for natural fermentation to turn them and coagulation to turn them into cheese and butter and things like that. Um, but we tried to take some shortcuts and uh, um, our team, you know, we created these, uh, this cheddar and this pepper jack that was basically on just like most of the other products in the marketplace based on oil and starch with a little bit of plant milk in it and some protein powder thrown into it. And we got it to the marketplace Um and we made more changes at the co-packer level. It's our first experience working with co-packers and the co-packers said, well, you know, you got to make a change here because it won't run on the equipment. And it basically just kept changing. And by the time we got to the marketplace, it wasn't even, didn't even resemble what we had developed on the, on the bench, which was pretty good, but still the departure from, you know, our really pure uh, value system. And um, I made the hard decision, um, last fall to just discontinue these products because I didn't feel like they lived up to our brand values. And so, you know, we just, we stopped manufacturing them at the end of 2021 and what's in the marketplace will be there for maybe a couple more weeks and they'll be gone. And we're just going back to the drawing board and we're going to figure out, you know, we have to, we have to stick true to our values. Yes. Once you start chasing uh, market research and trying to compete in an area, you know, getting this feeling, this pressure, like, oh, I have to do this because everyone else is doing it. You've lost your, your, your core sense of values and ethics and your core purpose. So yeah. we're going back to the drawing board and we ha- we're recreating from scratch and it's going to take time, but we're going to start with a, with a, a plant milk, just like we always have. And inoculate it with different cultures and enzymes and see how we can develop true, uh, you know, a, a truly, a true hard cheese, the old fashioned way yeah. with artistry and craft, not just, you know, a two day process that get lands on shelf a month later. You know, I love when you told me that the last time we spoke, I had so much respect for you because I ha- have had that same issue where, you know, you work with people and they are looking what other looking at what other companies are doing based on like market data and market research. And they're like, right. everybody else is doing this. So, you know, you might want to do this. And my response is always like, I don't want to copy what other people are doing. You know, I want to stay true to like my creativity and the products. And not that I don't want to be inspired by you know, a movement or an ingredient or something, but it's so um, uninteresting and it's not going to set you apart when you're doing the same thing that like five other people are doing, especially like you said, when it was, you know, for you, you felt like it was too processed and not in alignment with your values. And most people would probably have a lot of pressure to pull something off the market that they already launched like that. So kudos to you for, you know, being able to make that call. That really shows your level of integrity with your products. Well, you know, we got support from the board. Once again, they've been a very, very supportive board. Everyone felt that was the right decision. Um, And, you know, we're going to have to make up the loss of those, you know, of the, uh, the contribution right? um, uh, in dollars, but, you know, we feel we can do that. Um, And, you know, my, my promise to our consumers is we're going to stick true to our values and you're absolutely right. We can't go chasing uh, what everyone else is doing. We have to remain true to ourselves and kudos to you that you've always done that. Um, But, you know, when a company gets bigger, you start having more voices in the room. Yes. And I, you know, I should have really just stuck to my guns, but I didn't. And it's also really difficult when you, you know, I, like I started Urban Remedy thinking I was going to have my one little store in San Rafael. And then once you get to like your breaking point and you can't keep up with demand, which is a great problem to have, but you have to add like some weight, maybe it's a co-packer or some ways to be able to meet that demand. And then you hire people to help you with that. You know, it's really difficult because you want to stay true to your values and your ingredients. But, you know, I've had people come in and be like, well, if you just like, don't use organic, or if you just, you know, sub with X, Y, or Z, you know, you'll be so much more, you know, profitable, your margin will be better. And so to 
it's like it, you need to be the founder to stick to your guns and not, you know, not go against your own values and the reason that your customer loves your product so much, you know, and your product is so differentiated. Like I don't, there's no other cheese I see on the market that even touches your cheese. I mean, it's so incredible. So yeah, I mean, I think that I'm excited to see what you have in store next. Thank you. Yeah. No, we we're, we're diving into the world of different plant milks. We are exploring all these different ingredients, um, whole seeds and legumes and, uh, making them into milk and then culturing them and seeing the impact of different enzymes and bacteria to see what flavors we get, what textures we get. And it's really, really exciting. And we've got a couple of new products coming out this year. We've got for food service, we do have a food service version of a nut-free liquid mozzarella uh, that is based on, I'm going to just say it, watermelon seed milk. Um, and it's high in protein. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal on a pizza or in, in many other applications where you, you know, you have to cook the cheese because that's where the coagulation happens. Right. Um, but we also have a cottage cheese coming out later this year, um, that has 10 grams of protein per serving just from the plant milk. It's not coming from any added protein powders or anything like that. So this oh. is, this is how we create something that's clean label, whole foods, natural grows from the ground. I love that. I am so excited to try that because I love cottage cheese, but I haven't eaten cottage cheese. I don't know since I was a little girl. That's very, that's super exciting. Yeah. I'll have to get you some um, when, maybe one of the samples too. Yeah. Oh my God. It won't be in production until later in the fall. Yeah. And we're launching on Friday, our new chopped salad that has your chive cheese in it. It has like walnuts and arugula and eggplant bacon and. um, Oh my God. That sounds so delicious. Oh, and you know, one other thing I need, I don't even know if you know this, but I, I made a dressing with your cheese in it. That's like my version of a vegan blue cheese dressing. It's so good. Oh my God. That sounds incredible. And so those are coming out. Those won't be out, I think until spring, but they are, it is so delicious. So I, I'm so excited that I get to play with your cheese and use it in my products. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and sharing your wisdom and your vision. And you're such an incredible role model for other women. And um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, Nika. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at the You Are Love podcast. For more episodes just like this, please subscribe. This is Nika, and I'm wishing you a beautiful day.